Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. It seems like American society is increasingly partisan, tribal, angry, and lonely. A cottage industry sprung up offering explanations for this, from secularization to social media to declining trust in experts to changes in the makeup of the economy. Yuval Levin, our guest today, has his own theory about where to place the blame, namely with America's institutions. They're broken and no longer fulfilling their purpose, no longer fulfilling the central role in our lives they ought to. Levin isn't just concerned about government institutions, but also religious, academic, and professional. Over the next hour, we discuss just what institutions are and examine what role they play in forming us as people. We debate the relationship between institutions and the individualism that is so much a part of not just libertarianism, but the American experience. And we raise questions about whether it's in fact good that we all seem to be a bit more skeptical about traditional institutions and their claim authority. Joining us today is Yuval Levin, Director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Issues at the American Enterprise Institute and the editor of National Affairs. His new book is A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for having me. What's an institution? Well, obviously that turns out to be a very complicated question. And if you dig into the academic literature on that, you will never come out again. Um, <laughs> I think an institution – I think institutions are the forms of our common life. They are the shapes and structures of the things we do together. And so in a sense, institutions are clumps of people, but they're not just clumps. And the structures they have, the shapes they have matter a lot. Some institutions are, of course, formal uh, corporate institutions like companies or schools or hospitals, uh, a, a, a unit of the military, a, a political institution. Some are uh, much less formal and corporate but are essential institutions like the family, uh, like a profession. These are not quite as shaped by, uh, by, by law, but they are essential uh, to the functioning of our society. And ultimately, institutions are how we do what we do together. Is, are these different than civil society, which is something you hear a lot of people reference? Well, I think civil society is a way of talking about a sector of our social life. Institutions are what you find in civil society. They're what you find in society in general. I think civil society institutions tend to be more voluntary. They tend to be more bottom-up. They tend to be smaller, but they are institutions, certainly. But also, you, as you discuss, Congress is an institution, and that's not civil that's society. Not civil that's society. very uncivil yeah, society, also, actually. You know, uh, corporations large and small. Some of those might count in civil society, some not. Um, I think institutions ultimately are important for giving form and structure for what we do together, whether that's in civil society or whether that's in politics. Uh, was this – with like de Tocqueville and there's a lot of discussion, for example, of the kind of collaborative forms of American life, but this yeah. idea of institutions, I think in the last – I don't know, maybe 30 years, you've heard more and more about it. Economists have written about institutions. Yes, absolutely. But it also seems like you sort of made, we didn't actively maintain them. We didn't, I don't know how much we talked about them in the 20s. It just seemed like a way of being or, or say the 1820s. Well, right? that's, that's partly true. I would say there's definitely been a turn back toward institutionalism in the social sciences in the last 30 years. Um, and that followed a turn away from institutionalism in the social sciences. Um, the political science, sociology, even economics in the first half of the 20th century was very focused on institutions. 
I think part of what happened in the second half of the 20th century was a recognition of the limits of that way of thinking. Um, and so a turn toward various kinds from postmodernism and sociology and political science uh, to ways of thinking in economics about incentives and motivations that uh, began as a way to push against an excessive institutionalism, but by now I think are ways of informing a deeper institutionalism, what's called the new institutionalism, particularly in sociology, but there's some of that in economics too, I think is a way of thinking about institutions that's informed by people's motivations, by things like power relationships, the sorts of things that those dissenters discovered in the social sciences. So we're in another institutionalist age in the social sciences. It's not the first one, but it's certainly a change from where we were. What's the relationship between um, institutions and I guess length of time or tradition? Yeah. Because we're you – know, if institutions are us getting together and doing things together, that can be – those can be constantly forming and reforming and new ones can be coming in and we – you know, all of us do this all the time. But it seems like the institutions that you talk about and when we talk about institutions, there's more of a, a weightiness that comes from these things have been around for a while. Yes. Well, well, I, mean, I was say, so yeah, on that point, I had a specific question too on that. I like, guess Burning Man – an institution. Well, is it too, yeah, is give it, it a little more new? time is, than it is. is. It about that? Yeah, I, I, I would say institutions are durable forms. They're, the way I define it in the book is the durable forms of our, of our common life. And what that means is that they do have an existence over time. Um, they're not just pop-up things. They endure long enough to shape our perception of some portion of our, uh, of our experience. Uh, that doesn't mean they have to be ancient or that they have to be even traditional exactly. But I think it does mean that they're not just there to serve one temporary purpose and go away. They really are there to form something about the way we live together in our society. And so I do think institutions are connected to tradition in some respect or at least that they uh, endure long enough to give us a sense that they give shape to some part of our life. Is there a worry then that if we are – Institutions are formative of us, as you yeah. argue in the book, and um, and to some extent, like the value I think that gets placed in them is their degree of unchosenness. Like we didn't, you know, we didn't. Some just, of them, yes, that's true. But they're we're kind of compelled to be part of them, or we didn't choose to be part of them, and then they provide a structure that we have to learn to operate within, and we learn yeah. and we gain from that. Um, and so if. If this durableness, which requires them to have been around for a little while, as you said, Burning Man, if it was around for a while longer, it might become one. Does, do we risk essentially being slaves to the tastes and cultures and mores of the past? Well, here – that's a great question because it gets us right to the way in which I am a conservative um, and and not exactly a libertarian. Um, I, I, I don't think all institutions are unchosen or that they have to be unchosen. Many of the most important institutions in our lives are, are certainly chosen and are important because of that. But it does seem to me that we can easily overvalue choice in thinking about how we live our lives and how, and how legitimacy is derived. And many of the most legitimate institutions in our lives are not chosen. Um, from the family, which at least to begin with is not a chosen institution for, for a rising generation, 
uh, to the institutions of our society that we're born into. And, you know, whether we like it or not, we can do something about them. We can we can reform them and change them and help them address changing circumstances. We don't exactly choose them. And I do think that um, a lot of the most important institutions in our lives matter as much as they do because they are not functions of our choice, but they help us understand the environment, the situation in which we live. And so, yes, there's no question that living in a human society means in part being slaves to the preferences of prior generations. Uh, it also means in part enslaving future generations to our own preferences. That's true too. We don't, we don't begin life by choosing. But I think that ultimately living in a free society means that you do in important ways live life by choosing. And in doing that, you reform some of the institutions you're part of. Uh, you, you can change that society you inherited. But inheritance is not a choice. That's true. So what's wrong with institutions today? Well, I, I think you'd have to say that when you think about the kind of social challenges that Americans are living through, and this is a time when it seems like we are facing serious social challenges. You can see it in our politics. You can see it in some of the dysfunctions we find in various parts of our society. I think they have a lot to do with institutional dysfunctions. Um, the public has lost confidence in institutions over a period of decades, which ought to tell us something. And w one of the ways I try to get at this in the book is to look beyond familiar forms of corruption, which certainly are common in our time. They're common in every time. Corruption being really a way that people use institutional power to uh, to advance their own needs and wants and priorities over others in illegitimate ways. That, that certainly happens a lot in our society. But I think that another thing we see now that's distinct for, of our time is that we see a form of institutional dysfunction in which people who ought to be insiders in our institutions, people with responsibility and obligations who should be molded by the institutions they're part of, instead think of those institutions as platforms for themselves, uh, as ways of being seen, as ways of being noticed, of gaining prominence. Uh, and so you find this, for example, in our political institutions, it's very prominent, where members of Congress Many of the younger members in particular now think of Congress as a, as a platform, as a way to elevate their profile uh, and to perform for an audience in really an almost theatrical way. If you think about what happens in, a, in, in your average congressional committee hearing, it's basically a bunch of people creating YouTube clips. Um, and it has fairly little to do with legislation or with uh, the, the, the traditional work of a member of a legislature. It has much more to do with the work of a kind of public performance. If you look at what President Trump does a lot of the time, it's basically standing on top of the presidency and performing um, and, and speaking at it uh, or speaking from on top of it. And so he'll tweet about something he doesn't like about the Department of Justice. And you think, well, the Department of Justice works for you. I, it seems to me that you might call them. Um, but that that performance, that, that expression of outrage is how he understands his role in the presidency. I think in different ways you see this in a lot of other institutions in American life, in the professions, in the academy, in the media. Um, and I think that has to do with the decline of public trust in institutions because ultimately we trust an institution when we think that it is forming people who are trustworthy to – carry out an important task in our society or, or meet some need or want we have. And when they don't, when institutions don't play those formative roles, they become much harder to trust and they give us fewer objects for loyalty and commitment and devotion, fewer sources of legitimacy. So I think that failure has to do with what's gone wrong in our society. On the institutions as platforms issue, and so take, take Congress, for example. Um, 
so the the version of it that you just told is that Congress people are kind of more interested in promoting their own personal brand over the business of legislating or at least legislating well. But I can imagine an alternate explanation for it, which is the the purpose of Congress, um, the reason that people get elected to Congress, what they want to accomplish there is to move public policy in a direction that aligns with the desires of the people who voted them into office. Um, and in a world where most people get most of their information online in short clips, if you want to move public opinion, you want to galvanize public opinion, you want to get your voters engaged, which is how you then swing what happens in Congress, you do that kind of stuff because – so it's it's less of a I'm not using Congress to do what I ought to be doing. I'm using it to promote me and more of the the circumstances have changed such that the strategy and tactics that best accomplish what I've been brought here to do look like in this way promoting my personal brand. Well, the trouble is that Congress has an actual role to play in our system of government. Um, Congress creates the frameworks by making laws, creates the frameworks within which uh, the executive then operates and which the, the judiciary can then review. And so if we replace what Congress does with a kind of political performance art and simply think of Congress as another place to express views, then I think we've lost the basic function of the institution. There are a lot of places where people can express their opinion and try to sh try to mold public views. Certainly, Congress is one of those places, but the, the, the institution has another purpose, has another role to play. And when the expression uh, the, and, and the kind of performance art side of politics comes to entirely overtake its distinct function as an institution, then I think we've lost an important piece of our constitutional system. And that's part of what we see again in the presidency. In some ways, though, I think lesser ways for now, we see it in the judiciary also. It's what's happened to the political parties, which have a real role to play in our system in, in channeling views and creating coalitions. But the political parties also now are just platforms. They, they, they're just places where narcissists stand and talk. Um, and if everything becomes a platform, then our distinct institutions are not performing their distinct roles. We've never had a Congress that doesn't have people in it who are just making a lot of noise and grandstanding. Certainly, that's part of politics. But I think when that's all that happens in Congress, then we've lost something very important about what that institution is supposed to do for us. So, How do you see the causal chain working here? Because as you point out in the book, I think – well. The mid-70s might have been a kind of high-water mark for at least institutional trust and polling at yeah. least. Uh, and now Congress rates somewhere between like diphtheria and the Black Death mm -hmm. on, on, how yes. many, on approval ratings. Is it that – you know, you have media, big media environment uh, without direct connections. I know YouTube, for example. Uh, so people's trust is high, and then you start getting splintering of media environment. So, so then maybe some more right wing people go to Fox News and grandstand on Fox News, which which makes people just look at Congress as a bunch of grandstanders. And then the opportunities for that get bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, and that's sort of and I, that's how the causal chain kind of worked. Or or did they start grandstanding for maybe other reasons? I mean, was the partisan politics underlying it, the first causal chain as opposed to the grand chain? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I, I think the answer, the correct answer is a cop-out, which is to say, yes, yes. Um, there's a cycle here. But it seems to me also that we should, we should be careful about what we consider to be the norm of American trust in institutions. 
because we tend to compare today to the the post World War II period when the United States uh, Americans had a very unusually high level of trust in institutions after World War II. All of our institutions. There was this sense that that a big government with big business and big labor could just run the country. That's not the norm for America. Um, our situation in some ways is more like the norm. If you checked in on America in the 19th century, even putting aside the the the, the terrible 1860s, you know, approval ratings for Congress would have been in 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 the ditch. Um, and the sense that. Um, our institutions uh, were strong and great would not have been that strong. So I, I, I do think that this is an American situation. Uh, it's not entirely unprecedented. But there's certainly a way in which the extreme cohesion of the post-war era began to give way to a more fragmented form of America, in some ways a more free form of America. And that fragmentation was a liberalization that had a lot of good sides to it. But it also has meant less cohesion, less self-confidence, and less confidence in institutions. And I think it has interacted with certain changes in our culture and also technological changes that have given it this particular form where grandstanding is really at the center of what our institutions seem to do. And it's a kind of grandstanding that can find its distinct audience niches in a way that uh, th- that technology is now allowed to do. I think that exacerbates these problems in ways that we have to take seriously. The problems are never going to go away, but I think we can do a lot better at having coherent functional institutions that have a purpose beyond grandstanding platforms for the, for the people within them. Um, and that we can do that by seeing the problem in these institutional terms to begin with. Do you think this is – is there – what's the relationship, I guess, between – so the schismatism, the schismatic area, like partisanship in America is a big – at least comment upon issue. And it seems to be a big problem if our politics are going to be national. But for me, it's always seemed to be the case that as cultural divide – Moves spreads people from just being very different, living very different lives. Every election seems to be an existential threat to the, like, you know the next election. If we lose this, this is the end of America, and that's rhetoric is sort of ramped up. And then you therefore it kind of creates an ecosystem for people to really bang that drum from a grandstanding situation. But the underlying cause might be over-nationalization of our politics as opposed to – Well, I certainly agree with that. I, I, I think that the, the over-nationalization of our politics is a, is a major source of the problem we have and that more localism and more subsidiarity could help us some, including could help us – make some of our core institutions much more functional by giving them more of a role to play in in addressing problems people have. But I would also say that I think that the way that that's played out, the fact that it has turned some of our institutions from places that perform core functions and also can be used for grandstanding to places that are about grandstanding has meant that our politics – has the, our politics is always operating at this fever pitch where each party's priority is that the other party not win that's basically what they're all about now they're not they're not offering the public much in the way of an alternative set of ideas and solutions even when they talk about public policy it, what, what what often is going on is really a, a kind of signaling about affiliation and and party so that uh, you know, when when Democrats say uh, you know Medicare for all, they're not exactly talking about a public program. It doesn't really make sense that way. It's not even obvious what what problem exactly would be solved by such a thing. 
um, what they're saying is we're not them, we're us. And Republicans talk that way about their own issues. So that I, I think our politics now is at a place where every election is presented as a fight to the death because a victory by the other side would mean death. And grandstanding is how that happens. That's a politics of grandstanding. Um, I think that's in part a result of the dysfunction of Congress especially and of other institutions. Uh, and of course, it also drives that further. It exacerbates it. You had – a little while back mentioned just in passing that – so we've talked about there's the problems of institutions, but I think the problems of institutions, in large part, the reason that they're problems for the rest of us is because of the effect that this decline in institutions has on America. Um, otherwise, we could just ignore the bad institutions. Um, so what what are those – problems because there's there's a lot of kind of ills that people diagnose but what are the specific ones that you see as the result of the declining institutions well i think that when we when we think now about the kinds of challenges our society faces we incline to language that is about a kind of crisis of sociality we talk about alienation isolation loneliness um, when you look at some of the, the factors that underlie the opioid crisis or political polarization, they seem to revolve around this set of issues where people feel separated and unconnected. Um, one way to think about how to address that is just to help people build more connections. So we, we have in our minds often a, a, a picture of American life as a big open space full of people and those people now are having trouble kind of holding hands and so we need to build bridges or we need to break down walls or we need to have some kind of unifying vision that might bring us together. I don't think that's quite right. I think that it, American, if American life is one big open space, it's not quite a space filled with individuals. It is a space filled with institutions. And our failures of affiliation and connection uh, and and the crisis of legitimacy that seems to be shaping our politics now in a, in a populist direction, I think is the function of failures of institutions at a lot of different levels, failing to give people something to belong to, failing to give people ways of achieving status and prominence that don't involve this kind of uh, performative political performance art, failing to give ways, people ways to solve practical problems together. These kinds of failures lead people to alienation, to a sense that this society doesn't work for them. Maybe it works for other people, but not for them. I, I think th th by seeing that problem in terms of institutions, in part, right, it's not all that it is, but it's the part that we tend to miss, that we tend to treat as invisible and so to ignore. I think by making that more visible, we can see our way to some practical ways forward that otherwise might not be apparent. So that – those kinds of problems, alienation, the deaths of despair as they're called, um, some of the, the economic issues, the sense of disconnectedness, the loneliness, all of that. One of the things I notice when those issues get critiqued is that it seems like they're not they're not uniform geographically. They're they're highly concentrated among certain parts of the population, largely Working class, Rust Belt, um, which, and then in the popular narrative, the areas where we have the least institutional connection, where we have the, the most rampant individualism, are the urban areas. You know, the millennials who they don't attend church; they're not part of like civic organizations and so on. But they're not they're, married. they're they're not married. Um, but compared to the people who live in the areas where 
there are more of those institutions, they seem to be doing pretty well. So if if it's a decline in institutions and kind of a rise in individualism defined as I'm going to self-author and not be part of these things, why don't we see those problems more concentrated in the kind of elite liberal enclaves? Well, in some ways, I think we do. I, I, it seems to me that people who tend to live in those enclaves have more capital to burn and not just financial capital, but social capital too. They start from a stronger place, generally with stronger families, but also they have more connection uh, to, to school and work, to, uh, to, to people around them in various ways. It's true they're not getting married at very high levels, although that's also the case in, in those working class areas. Uh, it's true they're not having as many children uh, as prior generations had in their situation. Uh, but again, that's true in the areas that we think of as more failing. So I, I think that these, these failures of institutions are happening across the board in American life. Um, they're, they're showing up as bigger problems in places that start out weaker. And so in that sense, I think this concept of social capital can matter a lot. Institutions are one of the ways that we build social capital. We have a lot of ways of spending social capital in contemporary American life. I think we don't have enough ways of building it. And if we ask ourselves, how do you amass social capital? The answer to that is a very institutional answer. It's by it's by having ways and forms and structures by which to connect to other people, to network with them, to benefit from your relationships with them. And that's part of what institutions do for us. So I think in thinking about the problems that we describe to ourselves as shortages of social capital, we're also talking about institutional dysfunction. It seems that – this is not just a libertarian critique, but it would – definitely tie into that, that there are some institutions that we sh – it's good to trust, that we trust less now. Yes, I agree with that. Um, and that there was – we had this, you know, centralizing force, Walter Cronkite and, you know, three networks and those kind of things. And that might have helped us, you know, get into Vietnam and also distrusting the, the media or at least get as embroiled in Vietnam as we did. So distrusting the media is probably a good idea. Um, distrusting Congress is like, you know, libertarians – you know, aren't going to be like, well, you really should, you know, start trusting your congressman kind of thing. Public schools, you know, the that, police, that, the police, like these things where it's, it's the, the shattered media environment has let people, has covered stories that wouldn't have been covered by Walter Cronkite. So yes, it's good to know how, how much black men fear police in a way that, that we didn't know in 1975. So we don't trust that institution anymore. So, so sometimes it's a good thing. Absolutely. The, the argument of the book is not that we should just trust our institutions. The argument of the book is that we should work to make them more trustworthy. Um, and so what it really means to trust an institution is to believe that it forms the people within it to be worthy of trust, to be reliable. Different institutions do that in different ways, but they do it by forming a certain kind of human type. Right, And so if you think about what a profession does for you, for example, what it does for you is it gives you a process by which you can prove to the larger society that what you're doing is reliable and trustworthy. Um, and so that the, the weakening, the failure of that institution makes it harder for you to demonstrate that and tends to lead to public mistrust. Now, the public shouldn't just trust people with power. That's not democracy. That's not a good idea. Uh, people abuse power. Human beings uh, it, it tend to be corrupt and it, power tends to corrupt us further. So I think there have to be ways 
to to help us to, to to help us have the right kind of skepticism about power but that's part of what functional institutions actually do for us that's what the scientific method does for us when we think about what scientists do that's what journalistic ethics do for us uh and it, it it's what a a commitment to a certain ethic a certain standard in all of our different institutions can do for us if it's taken seriously so that i think that the the waning of those kinds of commitments to standards and ethics within our various institutions tend to undermine our ability to trust them. What I'm arguing for are ways of helping those institutions become more worthy of trust, not just that people should have more trust in Congress. Congress, as it is now, does not deserve to be trusted, and I don't trust it. I, you know, when, when, when those opinion polls say that 9% of the public trust Congress, I'm not in that 9%, and I don't know who is or why. Um, so I, yeah, it's friends and family, right? And a few lobbyists. So yeah, I'm not suggesting that, that we simply should trust our institutions as they are, nor am I suggesting that the, that the place where we want to get to is a hundred percent trust in institutions. That's not a functional society, but I think we've gone too far in a direction of accepting a circumstance of, of untrustworthy institutions and that we can do something to, to make that a little better. On rebuilding them, though, especially if we're we're framing institutions as formative and as having an ethical component, that part of part of a well functioning institutions is that when you they they make you a better person um, and they help you, they enable you to kind of live well uh, to a greater capacity. But one of the things that it seems has come out of the last however many years is that Americans, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but certainly feels this way. At, at a fundamental level, quite a lot of Americans just don't share a common conception of the good life. They have very different ideas. And if that's the case, then how do we build institutions that we – that are trustworthy and widely trustworthy um, and that we want to engage with without them kind of necessarily excluding yeah. – conceptions of the good. Well, look, I don't think that all functional institutions have to be national for one thing. I think most are not, especially in a country as vast as ours. There are a lot of institutions that can function as uh, as ways of instantiating in the world different views of what the good life is for different people. Um, that's one that's one way to answer that question. The other is that those institutions that we do need to be national can make a lot of room for differences about uh, fundamental questions even of the good life. I, th- I, I think this is a liberal society and I think that's a good thing and that the institutions of self-government in a liberal society are institutions that create spaces where people can flourish in different ways. Um, and so dysfunction in those institutions makes that harder and and creates a kind of dysfunction in in liberalism itself so i i certainly there are going to be institutions that are committed to an idea of the good life and therefore are exclusive of people who don't share that commitment um you know that's what it is to be a diverse society it's not that we have no views about good and bad it's that we have different views and people kind of clump around those different views and build institutions that allow them to live in the ways that they that they choose to and think are right so i i i think the the weakening of our institutions makes it harder for us to have this functional liberal society not that stronger institutions would mean we're a less liberal society you don't seem terribly uh, a big fan of social media uh, in the book. This is true. And, um, Are and, you on Twitter? I'm not on Twitter. No. <laughs> it's a good way to become not much of a fan of social media yeah. because Aaron's on Twitter much more. But uh, do you think there's – what's the role here? But also 
I mean, we're in the infancy of social media. I try and remind this to people all the time. Like they're in the digital, the digital natives in the term that we use have view online communities as real things. And they, and they, and I, even me, I've been members of forums and internet websites that created communities and norms and could be called institutions. So it wasn't just a shattering. It might be a shattering of before. And so you have a problem where you know the studies have shown that fake news is is shared most often by baby boomers, yeah. uh, but the skepticism of young people is like I, most of the stuff I know they're lying to me, and so they're they're getting better at building something. So could does social media have to be a form of sort of destruction, or can can, can it be a new type of life? Yeah, I certainly don't think build? it has to be. Um, I, I I agree with you, and as I argue in the in the, in the chapter on that in the book. Uh, the fact that we are early in this experience is very important to remember. And I actually think that there are ways that things have gotten better in, in you know, w- within our, within our, uh, within the last few years in our country. I, for example, I, uh, I, I run a journal called National Affairs. I hire people out of college to be assistant editors so just about every year. Ten years ago, we were finding, when we started, we were finding things in their social media profiles that you should never, ever want your employer to see, and that made it hard for us to hire them. That, frankly, doesn't happen anymore. Um, I, I, I think today's college students have learned how to live with social media. It doesn't mean they don't do that stuff. It means that they know the difference between what should be public and what should not be public. And that's a key part of what has become difficult in the age of social media. And I think our society is learning and adjusting and evolving around that in ways that can help us make the best of social media and avoid the worst. That said, I think that the the institutions of social media are platforms. They are native 21st century institutions, and they exist to display us and to let us express opinions. And it's dangerous to mistake those for social institutions per se. That is, it's dangerous to channel our social lives through institutions that are fundamentally performative. And part of what happens on Twitter and Facebook and other ways um, is that we, we sort of – we become our own paparazzi. We hound ourselves for publicity and make it very hard for us to live our lives in ways that make the most of institutional integrity. So I think Twitter has been terrible for our other social institutions. Twitter is a place where professionals deprofessionalize themselves. So if you check in on Twitter now and you follow political news, uh, what you'll find is – professional political journalists behaving like unprofessional political journalists, right? They do their work behind a process of editing and verification, but they spend all their time outside that process, making it impossible for people to tell the difference between journalism and just their latest opinion. Um, Journalism exists to avoid that problem, and Twitter creates that problem over and over. And I think you find that in a lot of ways that the way we use social media at this point is a kind of is a kind of informality machine. It breaks down forms and structures and barriers, which are what institutions do, and it makes it very hard for us to tell the difference between the public and the private. Uh, that means for the moment that social media is very, very bad for the health of most of our core institutions. It's bad for our political institutions, for professional institutions, even in some ways for civic and social institutions. I don't think it has to stay that way. Um, as I say, I think we will evolve and learn how to use this because there are a lot of great things about social media. And we're going to look for the, for ways of making the most of those while avoiding the worst of it. But <clears throat> at this point, I think social media is very bad for the health of our institutions. This um, informality machine, 
Could we think of that, though, as just a flattening of mystique? That, you know, we all, it's not, people haven't changed. Professional journalists have always had their opinions and they've always had just as many silly ideas and they've always gone out for drinks with their colleagues and said the kinds of stuff that they're saying on Twitter. Now they just happen to be saying it publicly. And so what's happening now is that, you know, and celebrities are a similar thing. Like you have this image of this person as this amazing being, but then you see their regular stuff and you're like, oh, they're, you know, just as kind of nutty as all the rest of us. Um, and I can see a value in that, in in flattening out that mystique and just saying like, no, people are people and they have domain knowledge and I'm going to listen to them, but I'm also going to recognize like, so it's, so maybe the, the trust that we had before the informalities was potentially a little bit misplaced and we're going through, you know, as it's, this is a transition period, this is a new thing, people are overreacting to things, but maybe in the long run, this is a good trend. Well, I think that's true in part, except that mystique is not just mystique. I, I think that what 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 formalities do for us is help us tell the difference between what we ought to trust and what we should not trust. Now, there are ways that they also create false images. That's certainly true, and mystique very often is false. But what the what the what the forms and rules of the professions do for us is help distinguish expertise from just uninformed opinion. And there is a difference so that when we lose the ways of telling the difference, we actually make it harder for our society to have any trust in anything or anyone. I don't think we should trust experts blindly, but I do think that expertise is a very valuable and important thing in society. Uh, I don't think we should trust journalists blindly, but I think that journalism that actually tries to distinguish fact from fiction and that puts before you what is a sort of best available sense of reality is a very valuable thing. So that seeing access to those things lost by this kind of breakdown of the, the capacity for public confidence in these institutions is a problem. And it's it's part of what creates the larger social problem that uh, has come to define this political moment for us. I'm kind of following up on Aaron's question, uh, I've talked to a few millennial, millennial friends of mine and, and even younger who talk about the the if you grew up at the time they did, and, and I'm not much older than a millennial, but the that the thing you end up really hating is inauthenticity. And as Aaron pointed out, the, the the facade is gone, and the mystique. You want people you you know that they're like lying behind behind closed doors, and they're doing something different. And you know, D D Donald Trump has Twitter account, um, and Nixon didn't. But if you listen to the Nixon tapes, if he would have had a Twitter account, it would have just been Donald Trump. I mean, him complaining about all in the family and why are there gays on television and all the stuff that he said to his advisors and wanting to smash media companies. So, so the fact that Donald Trump was actually out there, but would saying that have this, been a good thing? No, and well, no, but but maybe this transition is kind of interesting to authenticity because you author your own story. So, so we don't have to. So the. the Millennial generation and younger are very keyed into this. There's a reason why AOC, you know, has is a force. She's you know but, but the way we talked about Andrew Jackson creating populist politics and Trump is of course part of this too, of uh, using new media and new methods of campaigning and him getting out there and, and making a lot of people offended of the old guard the way that he actually ran for office. Well, now we have AOC cooking dinner and having 
100,000 people watch her and answering questions and everyone believes her. And then Elizabeth Warren tries to do it and it's so cringeworthy because she opens a beer and says, I'm going to have a beer, you know, because – and the millennials can just see through the inauthenticity. So what we're actually doing is like breaking down these institutions to build up new ones of like you, you need to be authentic yeah. and talk to us directly. So maybe that's what we can get out of this. Well, so this gets really to a very deep point, I think. Authenticity, there's a tendency in American culture and it's not new to understand authenticity as directness, right? To think of mediation as inauthentic. Um, and I, it, it seems to me that mediation is essential for formation. If we need to be better than we start out being, then we need institutions that change us somehow. And the ways in which they change us in part are by establishing certain kinds of norms and structures and forms. And sure, some of that is pretending, right? We pretend to be a better person in front of our kids. But you know what? We actually become a better person over time by doing that. Um, at least it seems to me that that's the case. This is a sort of Aristotelian way of thinking about how moral habits are formed. If, if, if you just follow the rule for long enough, you will eventually be the kind of person who that, that that rule wants to see in the world. Um, and so I think that these forms and structures that do mediate between people and that do give us the impression that this professional behaves a certain way, even though if we just knew that guy, you know, he's just a guy. Everybody is. Sure, that's true. But I think that those those forms of mediation, those ways of creating forms between ourselves and uh, and the people we need to trust are very important and they're not inauthentic. They're formative. They're ways of changing us. So it's true. They don't just display what we are now. And in that sense, they're not just authenticity. They're not just this is what I am. But they create a, a set of behaviors and attitudes that if you're going to be president of the United States, you ought to display before the country. You probably ought to have them too. That wouldn't hurt. But <laughs> not everybody's going to, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and no one is always going to. But it does matter that there are certain ways of behaving that are appropriate to certain roles we play in institutions. I think the question, given the role I have here, how should I behave, is the core institutional question and is the great unasked question of American life in this moment. The people who drive us most crazy are probably the people who just don't ask that question before they act. And the people we tend to trust and look up to are people who really seem to ask that question first. As a president, as a member of Congress, as the, the – as, as a lawyer, as a journalist. As a lawyer, yeah. as a journalist, right. As a teacher, as a principal, as a, as a, as a military officer, what, how should I behave here? How should I make this particular judgment? That question is very important and it's not about authenticity exactly. You may want to eat with your hands, but there's a reason you eat with a knife and That's fork. That's right. And if you if you just decide I'm going to eat with my hands all the time, people are yeah, like, why are you Yeah, that'd be real that? authentic, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. not yeah. ideal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do we set about fixing this then? Because so a lot of these institutions, so we're, we're, we keep saying institutions just as this kind of freestanding concept, but what matters is all of the the individual ones, and a lot of them like so Congress seems pretty broken and. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of will to fix it because it's broken on the inside, but the, the ways that that manifests outside, the voters seem to eat up. Um, the religion is certainly institution, but secularization is increasing and that trend's probably not going to change. So we're not going to reinstitute, you know, like everyone goes to their Catholic parish. Um, <clears throat> the 
academia um, has its problems, but also seems to be, I mean, perhaps declining as a cultural force. Plus, there are strong arguments that maybe too many people are going to college at all. So they should, you know, it should decline. So it seems like there's the one way to approach it is to try to fix the existing institutions. Um, but another way to approach it would be to say, we want institutions to fulfill the following purposes. How can we build new ones that don't suffer from these other problems or aren't in kind of the inevitable decline? And I assume the answer is a combination of yeah, both. Yeah, sure. And the book is called A Time to Build Rather Than A Time to Rebuild because I think that this is a moment that does require some new institutions and that we need to think in those terms when we think about how to solve the problems we have. But look, I would say the the, the purpose of writing a book like this is is to try to help surface the problem in these terms, to help people see that it has this institutional facet to it because that is a place where we might be able to do something, each of us, not just stand around and wait for a social revolution or a religious revival or whatever it is you think might solve this problem, not wait for something that's impossible for you to effectuate. But to begin with, just ask yourself that question. Given my role here, how should I behave? I think if each of us were more in the habit of asking that and of expecting other people to ask that before we will uh, buy their product or vote for them or put our kids in their school, then you, you could gradually have this effect from the bottom up in ways to try to help people address this problem in terms of institutional integrity. It also requires reform and it requires new institutional formation. That too, I think, demands that we see this problem in these terms. So if you talk to members of Congress, they tend not to think in terms of institutional reform. They just don't. They all complain about their jobs. They basically all hate their jobs from what I can tell. But they don't really think about what to do about that. So the budget process doesn't give them anything to do. But if you say to them, well, you know, you can change the budget process on your own. You you just need a majority of this house to change the budget process. They know that at an intellectual level, but they're not at work trying to make that happen. I think if we think about the challenges our institutions face in terms of uh, of institutional integrity and structure, we might be a little bit more inclined to look for ways to reform them in ways that would encourage this kind of sense of responsibility and ownership and uh, the, the would help people see themselves as insiders acting, not as outsiders complaining. And so gradual incrementally might do something. I don't, I'm not arguing for a big social revolution. I don't think it would help much to argue for that. I'm arguing for small incremental bottom-up changes that help to strengthen our institutions. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, you can find our Free Thoughts discussion group on Facebook or on Reddit at r slash Free Thoughts Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Free Thoughts Pod. As always, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.